Lord, we believe your word is true. And we're here this morning because we need to hear from you. As Peter said, where else would we go? You have the words of life. Lord, speak words of life to our hearts this morning. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Pray that you'd remove distractions, that you would grant us humility to be aware of our need and a willingness to receive all that you would reveal to us by your spirit through your word. We pray that Jesus Christ would be glorified in our midst now, and we pray it all in his name. Amen. Turn, please, to Genesis chapter 4 this morning. For those of you who are visiting, we've been studying through the book of Genesis together over the last several weeks. Chapter 1, God creates everything. In chapter 2, we see more specifically what he did in the creation of man. In chapter 3, we see where everything went wrong, that Adam and Eve sinned. They violated God's word. They fell, and the curse of sin and death entered into the world. In Genesis chapter 3, as we saw last week, there's two realities that emerge. And these two realities from Genesis 3, they shape the rest of the course of human history. These two realities, these two themes are the curse of sin and death and judgment. You will surely die, God says. From the dust from which you are taken, you will return. But there's another element that emerges, and that is the promise of offspring. Genesis chapter 3, 15, God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. These two themes, the curse of sin and death, human depravity, and the gracious promise of God to bring about rescue and redemption, these two themes will shape the rest of human history. And these two themes begin to unfold immediately as we turn the page into chapter 4. As we trace this story, as the story continues through Genesis, we see once again the severity of our sinful condition, the reality of divine justice, and the necessity of divine grace. This is our story as much as it is Cain and Abel's story and Seth's story. And these are truths we need to grasp as we seek to know and worship God, the one who made you and made me so that we might enjoy relationship with him. If we don't understand our need and we don't understand God's provision, we will never be able to enjoy relationship with God. We will never come to him as we ought in humility and repentance and faith. So we're gonna try to cover this whole chapter this morning so we won't necessarily read through every verse and explain every detail, but we do wanna trace this story here. The setting that the author Moses kind of gives us, sets up the stage, we find in verses one through two. It says, now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain, a worker of the ground. Verse one now expands the human population. Two have become three. And then quickly, four, as Eve, whom Adam had named her, Eve means mother of all the living, remember, at the end of chapter three, Eve now gives birth. Imagine the excitement and the wonder of these first parents. I mean, remember Adam, he had named all the animals, he knew there was no other creatures like him. There was no creatures that were fit for, for compatibility and relationship with him, and then God creates this woman and brings her to him, and now, through them both, he has created a third, and then a fourth. The God who had promised offspring to them, 
was now keeping his word. He had provided a man. Maybe, Eve hoped, this one would be the deliverer. Maybe this would be the offspring who would crush the head of the serpent. You can see she celebrates God's provision. I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. God is provided offspring. She also has another son, and him they name Abel. And if we were fluent in Hebrew, reading this as it was written, we would see that Abel has this meaning of breath, of of a temporary thing that is fleeting. It's here and then it's gone. Likely, they named him this as a remembrance that God had told them one day they would die and return to dust. But this name would become tragically very fitting for Abel, even though they didn't know it yet. We see here a little bit of detail about these two sons. We see a little detail about their livelihood. Cain, it says, followed in his father's footsteps as the oldest child, and he became a farmer. He was, as it says in verse Two, a worker of the ground. Abel diversified the family portfolio. He became a keeper of the sheep, like the patriarchs who would follow after him, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and even like King David, who would be descended from them. Both um, occupations are noble and necessary occupations. Both are fulfilling God's command to exercise dominion over the earth and to work the ground. So we have the setting here, two sons, But no sooner is the scene set than the crisis arises. We discover as we read on through chapter 4 that Adam and Eve had not only passed on their genes, they had not only passed on the image of God that they bore, they had also passed on their sin nature. Sin, like an incurable virus, spread. And where it spreads, it worsens. And when it worsens, as we see, it brings destruction. We see the spread of the curse in verses 3 through 24. Let's just read verses three through five. Look at your text with me. It says, In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for, for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. Now, at this point in human history, no formal law had been given, okay? Moses has not yet been born. The the Ten Commandments had not been written. There were no sacrificial laws, at least in a formal sense. But certain practices of worship have already evolved. Though man has been separated from God and banned from the garden, there is still relationship here. Man knows that he is is to be relating to God, interacting with God. There's still a relationship. So worship and honor is here being expressed to God through sacrifice, giving to the Lord from the fruit of their respective labors. So naturally, Cain, as a farmer, brings some of his produce, and Abel, as a shepherd, brings from his flock. But there's a difference here in the sacrifices. Cain is described in verse 3 as simply bringing some of the fruit of the ground. Very unspecific description here. But Abel, it says, by contrast, brings the best of the best. It says he brings the firstborn, the biggest and the fattest, the best, which pleased the Lord. God accepted his sacrifice because there's a certain heart behind it. But it says of Abel's sacrifice, he had no regard. God did not receive his worship. God did not accept his offering. And that makes Cain angry. He becomes angry. 
Now, some people have said that the reason Cain's sacrifice wasn't accepted is because of what he brought, because it was fruit of the ground instead of, instead of an animal. But keep in mind that later in the Old Testament law, there would be instructions for the people of Israel to bring both kinds of sacrifices. There were to be animal sacrifices, but not all were sheep. Sometimes there would be, you know, oxen, you know, a bull or, or a calf. Sometimes there would be uh, grain offerings or oil offerings or different things like that. So there was all different kinds of offerings. So the emphasis here in, in Genesis 4 is not necessarily that God is rejecting the fruit of the ground as a suitable offering. It rather reveals that God is rejecting the one who brought it. There's a difference. There's something about the worshiper himself that is not acceptable to God. We see a little bit of a hint of it in verse 3, that Abel brings the best to the Lord, which is indicative of a heart of genuine worship, and Cain simply brought some stuff. It's an empty duty. He knew he was supposed to, so he brought some stuff. You see, God not only, not only sees their offering, he sees their hearts. And as God sees their hearts, that is what is behind his acceptance of Abel's offering and his rejection of Cain's. In Proverbs 21, 27 it says, the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination. It's a big word that means God hates it. How much more when he brings it with evil intent? You see, Cain's pride and Cain's arrogance and his wicked spirit that we see on display later, I think many of you guys know what's going to happen next, that didn't come out of nowhere. That anger and that jealousy and that violence, that wickedness, that hard heart, that didn't just come out of nowhere. God sees that already as he brings the offering. Abel's sacrifice, on the other hand, was acceptable because the condition of his heart was pleasing to God. As we read in the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 11, verse four says this, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. The difference between Cain and Abel is not necessarily what they brought. It's the condition of their heart. And what they brought was affected by the condition of their heart. As David would later write in Psalm 51, verse 16, he acknowledges this to the Lord. He says, you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. He's saying, I know you want more than just me to bring you things. David says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And that broken and contrite heart is exactly what Cain was lacking. We see it here in his response. Instead of being repentant and humbled when his sacrifice is rejected, instead of taking that as an indicator that, wow, something in me needs to change, rather we see that Cain is rebellious. He becomes angry. He's jaded towards God and jealous towards his brother. This is not the response of a humble believer. So we see two brothers here, and there's a contrast. Two sacrifices, two different responses from God. And trouble is on the horizon as Cain's anger begins to fester. His bitterness and resentment begins to grow. In many ways, what happens next is going to be an echo, a replay, in a sense, of what happened in the garden. Look in verse 6 through 7. Like Eden before them, Cain is presented with a new temptation. Look in verses 6 through 7. The Lord, who knows Cain's heart, said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will not you be accepted? And if you do not do well, 
Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain's angry reaction prompts a warning from God. God speaks to him. There is a temptation looming, and God knows it. And this time, the temptation is much darker than simply the impulse to eat of the fruit that was forbidden. Cain's anger has bred a hatred in his heart towards his brother, and that means that Cain has become vulnerable to temptation. He is vulnerable to being overcome by sin. The warning that God gives him in verse 7 personifies sin itself as a predatory creature that is ready to strike. Um, when I was in high school, my family moved out south of town, and lived on some acreage there, and we lived far away from the road, and we had to take the trash all the way down to the, the road um, before Wednesday morning when trash day was. And what we'd usually do is throw the trash cans in the back of a pickup truck and drive it all the way down. We'd usually just leave it there. We didn't want to leave the trash cans on the ground because then the coyotes and dogs would get into it. So we had to walk all the way back from the road back to the house. And usually, if you're like me, you'd forget to do the trash until it's like 10 o'clock at night, right? Do any of you guys take the trash out late at night before trash morning? But we had this very large field that we had to walk past to get all the way back to our house. And it had this big CRP grass in it. It was real tall. And walking, through, walking right along that long field in the middle of the dark, all the stories you've heard about mountain lion sightings in Kansas, those would all come flooding into my mind. And so you're walking, and especially when there's no moon and lots of clouds, and it would be so dark. And you're just wondering, is there some large cat? And my family has seen them down there on their property. Is, is there a big predator right now that's crouching, ready to spring? It's an unnerving feeling. That's exactly the, the illustration here, that the metaphor that God uses. When he speaks to Cain, he says to him in verse 7, if you do not do well, if you don't respond to this rightly, if your heart doesn't change, sin is crouching out the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. He tells him, listen, Cain, there's about to be a contest of wills, evil and sin versus you. Who's going to win? It's a warning, and it's a temptation. The language of this warning reminds us of the conflict between good and evil in chapter 3. Enmity between the serpent and the offspring of the woman. This war between mankind made in the image of God and evil itself. Even the language of mastery here brings to mind the effects of the curse. The language here it uses when it says its desire will be for you, but you must rule over it, reminds us of what God said to Adam and Eve, that, that Eve would desire to master her husband, to rule over him, but he would rule over her harshly. It's the same kind of language. There's going to be conflict and a contest to see who will dominate the other. In this case, it is Cain versus sin. The serpent is at war with the seed of the woman. And Cain, God says, is dangerously close to giving himself over as an instrument of evil. But just as Adam and Eve ignored the warning of God in the garden when he said, do not eat of it or you will surely die, so too Cain will not heed the word of the Lord. Like the Garden of Eden, we find in verse 8, not only another temptation but another transgression. Verse 8 some of the saddest words in Scripture. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. He killed him. As Derek Kidner points out, Eve was talked into her sin, remember? Satan tempted her, and 
caused her to doubt and invited her. She was talked into her sin, but Cain can't be talked out of his sin. He is determined to do this work of violence against his brother. The text says <coughs> that Cain rose up and killed him, that this is premeditated. This is first-degree murder. Cain ignored the warning of God, and he killed his brother who was made in the image of God. This is the first death, the first death. The sad consequences of Adam and Eve's sin. Bad fruit is already being reaped. Instead of crushing the enemy, Cain, who was so hopefully named by his mother at his birth, instead of crushing the enemy, Cain kills his fellow man, his brother, his own family. That this was cold and calculated is seen in Cain's hard-hearted response when confronted by God. Just like Eden, following temptation, following sin, God comes to confront the man. We see another confrontation in verses 9 through 10. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Just as he had done with Adam and Eve, God seeks the sinner and he questions him. And even the questions sound familiar. Adam, where are you in the garden? Cain, where is your brother? Just as God said to Eve, what is this that you have done? He questions Cain, what have you done? Remember, God doesn't ask questions because he needs information. He's giving Cain an opportunity, just like his parents, to confess. Confess. What is this that you have done? But like the garden, there will be no confession. Adam and Eve blamed one another and made excuses. But Cain's, Cain's response is, in fact, even worse than Adam and Eve's. Both of them fail to confess, but the heart is different. In, in Genesis chapter 3, we see that Adam and Eve sort of dodged God's questions to avoid confession. But Cain, he doesn't avoid it or dodge it. He is defiant. Just as he despised God's warning, he callously refuses to confess. When asked where his brother is, he lies. I don't know. He knew exactly where Cain, where, Cain knew exactly where his brother Abel was. And then Cain mockingly asks if he is his brother's keeper. Remember, Abel is the keeper of the sheep. So he's taking a dig at his brother at the same time he defies God. You really expect me to shepherd the shepherd? I'm not his keeper. Rather than bearing the image of God, we see here that Cain has been overcome by sin. And he's reflecting a dark and sinister image. Jealousy, anger, murder, and lying. Not like the God who created him, but like the devil himself. In 1 John chapter 3.10, John writes, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. In verse 12, he says, We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Rather than reflecting the image of God, Cain was furthering the agenda of the serpent, making war against the seed of the woman. Cain ignores, or God rather, ignores Cain's lie. He gave him an opportunity to confess, but he knows what happened. And now God confronts him directly in verse 
10. What have you done, God says? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. You see, God knows. God knew Cain's sin. God knows your sin. He knows my sin. Those thoughts that nobody else knows, God sees. Those words that have been spoken in secret behind other people's back, God has heard. Those things you have done when you thought no one was around and nobody knows, God knows. He sees all. He knows all. And he is just. He is just. He is totally aware of what's happened in this case. Abel's blood, God says, in a metaphoric sense, cries to him from the ground. You see, God has holiness. He has this holy sense of justice that has been stirred and provoked by Cain's wickedness. Although sin has entered the world, and the world lies under the curse, and there is much wickedness that happens, there is a God who sees, who knows, and who hears, and justice will be brought. It will be brought to bear on all wickedness. God says, I know what happened, and your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. And like Eden, again, following the same pattern, following confrontation, there is another curse. Read with me the curse in verses 11 through 16. And now you, God says to Cain, you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Though the ground was cursed because of Adam in Genesis chapter 3, remember that? God said to Adam, cursed is the ground because of you. Here we see that Cain, in a reversal, is cursed because of the ground. And what that means is that Cain will lose his livelihood. He is a worker of the soil. He's a farmer. He he plants and, and sows and then reaps. But now the ground that he had tilled and cultivated has been polluted with the blood of his brother. And so it is now, he is now cursed from the ground. Although his parents lost the place of blessing, as they were driven out of Eden, Cain will have no place at all. He will have no place at all. The ground, no matter where he went, would produce no food for him. So he would have to search and scavenge to provide for his family and to survive. He would be a wanderer. Later in verse 16, when it says he's in the land of Nod, that word itself means wandering, place of wandering. Cain is cursed because of his sin. He's experiencing the consequences for ignoring the warning of God and giving himself over to sin. Unlike his parents who quietly received their consequences, Cain protests his punishment, verses 13 through 14. Cain says to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. There's no I'm sorry. There's no oh, I wish I would have never done that. He just says, God, you're being too harsh. My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. He complains that his punishment is too severe, and he expresses fear. He's afraid of retribution as the family spreads. Perhaps Cain already had had children. He says, if anyone finds me, they're going to avenge the death of Abel and kill me. But even though Cain is hard-hearted, even though he's unrepentant, even though he is proud and arrogant and defiant, we see that God, even though Cain deserves it, not one bit, God is still merciful and he's still gracious. 
Just like he was gracious to Adam and Eve, though they failed to confess as they should have, he is gracious to Cain. Just as God provided for Cain's parents by clothing them with animal skins and to protect them from the elements, God provides a mark for Cain to protect him from those who would seek his death. In verses 15, the Lord says to him, not so. He says, this will not be too harsh for you to bear and you will not be killed. He says, if anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. God protected him, protected him from vengeance. We don't know what the mark of Cain was. The Bible doesn't say. People speculate, but such speculation takes us beyond what scripture says. But this mark was simultaneously God's grace to him because it protected him from retribution, from other people killing him, but it was also lifelong reminder of his sin and his shame. But God spares his life, even though he doesn't deserve it, and allows him to continue on. And as Cain's life continues, as we read the rest of the chapter, we see that the story of Cain is one big giant tragedy. And sadly, this tragedy will not be the last of its kind. Cain would leave a legacy of sin that would spread to all his descendants. As we see throughout chapter 4, as man multiplies, so does sin. Just as sin was passed from Adam and Eve to Cain, this sin is passed from Cain to his descendants. We see that his descendants introduce the practice of polygamy. We see that Lamech takes two wives, starts a really unhealthy practice in the Old Testament. And this polygamy usually ends badly for people in the Bible. If you read the Old Testament, though God gave Adam one wife, Lamech takes two. He takes two. You see that in verse 19. Lamech, several generations after Cain, took two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other was Zillah. God gives Adam one wife, but Lamech takes two. Like reaching for forbidden fruit to increase knowledge, Lamech takes it reaches for two additional two wives to increase the power and population of their household. I mean, at this time, as the human population is spreading, the more kids you have, the more powerful you are, and the more people you have with you, the more power you have over others. We see Lamech reaching for this. We see that as Cain's descendants increase, the level of violence increases. This man Lamech, who took two wives, we see that he continues his great, great, great-grandfather's legacy of murder. Lamech says to his two wives in verse 23, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. Lamech's pride and anger and violence overshadows his ancestors. You see, Cain denied his murder. God says, where is your brother? I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? He denied his sin, but Lamech celebrates his. He brags on it about the people that he's killed. We see that sin is growing worse. It's growing worse. From generation to generation, it's getting worse. Like a cancer, sin metastasizes. It spreads. It corrupts, and it destroys. Doubt and covetousness in the garden led to eating. Envy and animosity outside the garden leads to killing. The worsening condition of man will eventually bring a flood of judgment on the whole world. By the time we get to Genesis chapter 6, 
Moses comments, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence. The whole world is growing progressively worse because of sin. Cain is a sad and sobering picture of unbelief. Unbelief. We see unbelief in his heartless offering. We see unbelief as he rejects God's warning and advice. We see unbelief as Cain refuses to confess. We see unbelief as he protests his punishment. We see that his lineage is marked by rebellion and unbelief as well. Now, go back to Genesis chapter 3. What was the promise? The promise that was through the seed of the woman would come one who would crush the head of the serpent. But as we read the the history of Cain and the lineage of Cain, these are not the offspring of promise. These are not the ones who will defeat the evil one and rescue God's people. All of these people, like Cain, have been overcome by sin. It causes us to, to, to sit back and almost despair and ask the question, is the serpent winning the war? Is the serpent winning the war? Well, we haven't got all the way through chapter 5 yet. There's two more verses. The answer to that question, is the serpent winning the war, is no. Cain's line will not be the only line. By God's great grace, just as the curse spreads, so also the promise continues. Just like in chapter 3, we find a glimmer of hope reminding us of God's plan to redeem his creation. Look in verse 25. Following this horrible song celebrating violence and arrogance and pride, this man Lamech who is completely overcome by sin, we read, and Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh, At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. So if the first part of the chapter shows us that the curse spreads, we see in verses 25 and 26 that the promise continues. Imagine, you put yourself in Adam and Eve's position, especially those of you who are parents. Imagine their anguish. Imagine their grief and their pain to see their older son murder their younger son. Really what happened in in chapter 4 is that Adam and Eve lost both of their sons, didn't they? They lost both of them. One was murdered and the other is banished, sent away. And it becomes evident that he will not be the offspring who will bring rescue and redemption. It's not only a painful family tragedy for them, this also brings into question how God will fulfill his promise. But Eve, once again, as we see in verse 25, bears a son. And once again... She acknowledges the provision of God, that God has given her this son. She says, God has appointed for me another offspring. The bitterness of pain and loss is still evident. Even as she names her son Seth, you can see this pain in her heart as she says, another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. But we also see renewed hope. There is renewed hope In the promise, even in the midst of their grief and their sadness and their sorrow, there is still hope. In the birth of Seth, God is keeping his word. God is appointing another offspring. And what this means is that the promise is alive. What this means is that even though the serpent is waging war against the offspring of the woman, 
He will not be ultimately victorious. God is preserving a chosen line. You see, God's word never fails. His word never fails. In chapter one, we see that God's word creates. In chapter two, we see God's word commands. Chapter three, we see God's word curses and condemns, but it also gives promises. God's word never fails. God always does what he says he will do. And he said there would be offspring. And he said that through this offspring would come one who would crush the head of the serpent. And there will be offspring. You know, when we get to the New Testament in Luke chapter 3, we find a genealogy. And it's not just there for the purpose of a family tree. In that genealogy, we see that through Seth's line, through this third son of Adam and Eve, through Seth's line would come Noah, later Abraham, and Isaac, and Jacob, and Judah, and later David, and ultimately, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the one who would be the offspring, who would fulfill that promise from Genesis chapter 3. If God doesn't provide Seth, Jesus never comes. The promise is never kept, and salvation is never accomplished for people like you and me who live under the curse. Not only is the birth of Seth a sign of grace, We also see a stark contrast between the line of Cain and the line of Seth. Verse 26 tells us that as Seth's line continues, notice what it says. It says, people begin to call upon the name of the Lord. What a different legacy than Cain's descendants, right? One line is marked by arrogance and hostility and violence, but the other line is marked by life, faith, and ultimately leads to salvation. There's a contrast here, two ways to live. To summarize chapter four, we see that Eve's hope at the beginning was that Cain would be the offspring, but he was ironically and tragically the destroyer of her other offspring. So it becomes the youngest, Seth. You know, often we refer to this story as Cain and Abel, but really we should refer to this story as Cain and Abel and Seth because it is through Seth, the youngest, the unexpected one, He is the one who will be God's chosen bearer of the promise. And this really begins a pattern that we see throughout the rest of the Bible, doesn't it? It's typically the younger, the smaller, the weaker, and the unexpected ones through whom God does his greatest work. Remember that Isaac is the unlikely son of Abraham and Sarah. They were old. They were far beyond the childbearing years. And God gives them an unlikely son, the son of promise. Later, Jacob will be the younger son of Isaac. It's not the older Esau who receives the blessing. It is Jacob, later renamed Israel, who will be the bearer of the promise. Later we see that it is Judah, not the oldest of the 12 sons of Israel. It's Judah, who's there in the middle, who will be blessed, who will be the ancestor of King David. Remember, David himself is the youngest of all his brothers. He's not the biggest and the strongest. When Samuel comes, he goes, oh, surely it is this one, the oldest. And God says, no. It's the youngest, the most unlikely, the unexpected one through whom God is going to do his work. And then the greatest surprise of all, talk about unexpected. We get to the New Testament and we find a young virgin giving birth. She doesn't even have a husband. It is through this poor couple from Nazareth that the Redeemer will come. Born in a manger, in obscurity, in poverty, not in glory in Jerusalem in the palace, not with fanfare, 
Only a few shepherds will come to celebrate his birth. And then in a turn of events that shocked his disciples, this Jesus would be crucified, not enthroned. He would wear a crown of thorns instead of a crown of gold. This is not what they expected. The disciples were horrified. No, this isn't what the Messiah is supposed to do. But on the third day, in a move that surprised many, even though he had tried to tell them, Jesus would rise again and conquer death. We see this lesson again and again and again throughout Scripture, that God works in unexpected ways, surprising ways, to display his power and to show us his sovereign grace. This is how God works throughout history. Cain and Abel, but it will be Seth who will be the bearer of the promise. You know, the fact that God works in unexpected ways, the fact that he keeps his promise, the fact that he sovereignly accomplishes his gracious purposes is good news. It's good news for people like Adam and Eve who had lost both sons. It's good news for sinners like you and me who ourselves, if we're honest, have often been overcome by sin. You see, we have a lot in common with Cain. As we read this story, you probably tend to put yourself maybe in Adam and Eve's shoes or maybe in Abel's shoes, but the reality is you and I have a lot in common with Cain, don't we? Sin is crouching at the door, and it wants to rule over us. We've all felt the pull of temptation. We've all experienced the bitterness of failure. Sin And the devil want to enslave and destroy us. And just as God warned Cain, he warns us today. We read in James chapter 1, James says each person, not just Cain, all of us, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. James says, listen, sin in your life And he uses this language that refers to this monstrosity that it's conceived and when it's fully, when it's birthed and fully grown, it brings death. And he says, do not be deceived. Don't think that this doesn't affect you. Don't think that you are exempt from sin crouching at the door, wanting to rule over you. As we read through Genesis 4, we we realize there really are two ways to live. There's the way of Cain, and then there's the way of faith, the way that we see demonstrated by Abel and his sacrifice and later by Seth and his descendants as they humbly call upon the name of the Lord. There's two ways to live. There's darkness or light. There is belief or there is unbelief. There is repentance or there is rebellion. There's the way of Cain or there's the faith of Abel. The question is, whose legacy are you carrying on? Which family fits you best? Do you consider your heart in your life, do not be deceived. But just as this text gives us a warning, it also gives us hope. Just as there is a warning, there's also a word of encouragement for sinners. Although we have all been overcome by sin, the good news is that God is able to overcome. He's able to overcome our sin. He's able to extend grace to the ones that he loves. How? How can God show grace to people who have been overcome by sin? How can God destroy and defeat this enemy that wants to rule over us? What God does is he takes the weapon of the enemy, death. Death is the weapon 
that the enemy used to destroy Abel, the bearer of the promise. But God takes this weapon of the enemy, murder and death, and God uses that weapon against him. It's through the death and resurrection of Jesus, through the murder of the Messiah, that we can be forgiven of sin and actually delivered from death and restored to God. The shedding of Abel's blood and of the millions who have been wrongly killed after him, that blood cries out for God's justice, doesn't it? We saw that. God says, the blood of your brother cries to me from the ground. The blood of the martyrs calls out to God from the ground. The blood of millions of Holocaust victims calls out to God from the ground. The blood of millions of aborted babies today calls out to God. And it incites his justice. And even if that justice is delayed, it will be exercised. The blood of many victims, cries out for God's justice and brings down the wrath of God upon man. But the shedding of Christ's blood also cries out, and it cries out for God's mercy upon sinners. Whereas Abel's blood condemned Cain, the blood of Christ is what pardons us. Listen to what Hebrews 12 says. Hebrews 12, 22. It says, You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and festal gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn who enrolled of heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. He says, In salvation, we've been brought to God, reconciled with him, and we are now brought into his presence to enjoy the fullness of the glory of his kingdom. And he continues that not only have we been brought to experience all these things, he says, you have been brought, in verse 24, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The blood of Abel condemns, but the blood of Christ pardons us. It brings us salvation instead of wrath, redemption instead of judgment. And friends, this is our only hope to be rescued from our sin, the sin that has overcome every one of us. Our only hope is to come to Christ because his blood cries out for God's mercy. Sinner, believe today that the promise has been fulfilled through the work of Jesus Christ. Hope in that promise. Believe that what Jesus has done can save you. I invite you this morning, if you have been overcome by your sin, if you at this point are estranged from God and you've never turned to him, you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ to receive that gift of salvation, come to Jesus today, to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel and believe, believe and receive his salvation. Be rescued from your sin and from the death that your sin deserves. God keeps his promises. He's fulfilled it all through Jesus so come to him and believe. Maybe this morning you've already put your faith and trust in Jesus. Maybe you know him already and you're believing in the gospel. Say, yes, it's only by the, the death and resurrection of Christ that I have salvation. And you know that your future is secure. You know that you've been made right with God. Praise the Lord. Find comfort and rest in that. In that. But perhaps this morning you're identifying quite a bit with Eve. Perhaps you're experiencing the pain and the suffering of loss. You're living in a broken world and you're seeing the tragic effects of sin all around you and it's pierced you to the soul. 
God not only gives a warning for sinners and offers them hope, but he also gives us in this text hope for sufferers. There's hope for sufferers. To those who are suffering, I want to encourage you this morning to take heart because God keeps his promises. His plan of salvation cannot and will not be stopped. If you're his child, know this. He has set his love on you and he is faithful. God did not leave Adam and Eve to wallow in their grief without hope. He provided Seth. He kept his promises to fulfill for them what he had promised to bring salvation. What this means is that we can trust him even when we suffer, even when it seems like all is lost. God, what are you doing? God, how are you going to provide? How are you going to rescue? How are you going to protect us? Look at all this that's happening. God says, I can and I will. It may be in unexpected ways. It may be in the way that you least are looking for, but God keeps his promises and salvation is coming. Adam and Eve had to look forward to the fulfillment of this promise. We look backwards to see many of the promises God has fulfilled, but there are more promises that you and I today are waiting on. Resurrection, glorification, that one day our own sin nature will be fully put to bed as we are made new and made alive. We're looking forward to that day when Christ returns and makes all things new. Look forward to the fulfillment of the promise and believe that God will do it. He will not leave us in our sorrow and in our sadness. Psalm 30, verse 4 says, Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. That's an expression of faith. Verse 5, For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. If you today feel that you are in that period of night that is dark, and you're weeping, You're weeping because life is hard and sin brings pain and suffering into your life. As I think just of the things our church is going through right now, family struggles, cancer, leukemia, suicide, job loss, suffering that maybe hasn't even been shared publicly. There's many in this room who are going through a lot of pain. Weeping may tarry for the night, But joy comes with the morning. Look to the rising of the sun and be confident in this today, that God's promises will be fulfilled. He will never leave you. He will meet your needs. He will preserve you to the end. He will bring you safely home. And he will make all things right. I love Romans chapter 8, 18. Paul writes, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. He doesn't say suffering isn't real. He doesn't say suffering isn't hard. He doesn't say that it isn't painful. What he says is that it's worth it because something better is coming and he's confident that it will come. Paul continues, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Adam and Eve groaning, creation groaning. You and I today perhaps groaning. He says not only the creation but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we eagerly wait for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes in what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. That's the call for us this morning, is to wait in patience for God to fulfill his promises. There is hope there for us. Hope in the midst of our sadness 
and our suffering. The God we serve is gracious and merciful and sovereign, so let's look to him in faith to rescue us from sin, to redeem us from the curse, to bring his promises to fulfillment, to make all things new, to make all things right. Praise God that he keeps his word. Father in heaven, as we read of this story, we are horrified to see what sin brings to the human race. That same sin that infected Cain's heart, Lord, we carry it with ourselves as well. All of us have been overcome. We've, been, we've given in to our sin. But Lord, we thank you that because Christ's blood was shed, we can be set free, we can be forgiven. Because of his death, we can have life. Lord, as we look and see throughout history how you have kept your promises, how through unexpected and unlikely means you have preserved offspring, we are thankful, Lord, thankful that we can be confident that even when it seems that all is lost and the odds are stacked against us, you always win, you always keep your promises, and you save your people. Pray, Lord, that this morning you would bring about in our hearts a response to all this, a response of faith, that we would be part of the family legacy of Seth, those who call upon the name of the Lord, not those who manifest unbelief, hard-hearted pride like Cain and his descendants. Pray, God, that you would fix our hope and our gaze this morning on Jesus for those who are suffering, for those who are in sorrow today. I pray, God, that you would encourage them that though weeping may last for the evening, that joy... Joy comes in the morning. Heal our hearts this morning with this gracious promise, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.